The following audio content is a talk given at the Inn, a college ministry of University Presbyterian Church in Seattle, Washington. For more information, please visit our website, theinnseattle.org. We invite you to join us each Tuesday at 9 p.m. on the corner of 16th and 47th in Seattle's U District. I'll start off by, by asking you a bit of a, of, a, of a self-reflection question. How do you do with names? Okay, and I'll be straight up with you that remembering names for me is not the easiest of tasks. Uh, I'm grateful when people come up and introduce themselves to me, even if it is for the second or third or tenth time. It lets me off the hook. You, I'm, I'm one of those guys that has a, a lot of those moments where I'm like, hey, how you doing there, bud? How you doing, you know, I call lots of people bro and sis because I want to be theologically accurate in, in the way that I'm referring to us as the family of Christ, right? And I may not remember your name or be super confident about it. But I don't, as bad as that is, and, and again, in all seriousness, thank you for throwing me a bone uh, when you've had to do that. But in all seriousness, that's not as bad as this memory I have from several years ago. I was at a party and it was one of those parties where, where my worlds were kind of coming together. You know, it was work friends with college friends. And so I'm sitting and talking to one, one friend and I introduced him to a good f- college friend of mine, um, named, named Kevin Chang. And, you know, they, they start talking and I actually move on to different, uh, different conversations. And about two hours later, this, this friend comes up to me and he's like, Oh man, that guy was really cool. But, all night. And when I introduced him, to be fair, it's one of those parties where people are talking. You know how it is. It's, it's full and it was loud and you can't totally hear everything. But for two straight hours, this guy called my friend Kevin Chang, Kang, just Kang. Nobody calls him that. I don't know how he got that. He must not have heard anything. But for two hours, he called him Kang. And it, to this day, it, when it comes up, this friend is like, oh my gosh, I cannot believe that. You know, maybe it's one of those things that in environments like this, one of the, and like that, you know, where we can tend to maybe not hear things correctly or just uh, butcher names, uh, you know, and I even think about an environment like this where the biggest critique I, I hear of, oh man, you know, that, that time before and after the end, everything is just so surface level. You know, I want, I want to have conversations that are, that are, that are real. I want to have conversations uh, where where we're intentional and we're really seeking to get to know each other. And we all want that, but we've got to have a starting place, right? Being known is at the heart of that critique. We all want to be known. And there's this tension, right? That that as we want to be known, as we want to belong, it is all at once the great desire of our hearts. And it's also terrifying, right? That sense of what happens if I'm fully known? What happens if I'm found out? Tonight, we engage a story that tells us a little bit about what it's like to be known by Jesus and what might happen when we realized just how known and how loved we are. Now, to remind you, we are on a journey at the beginning of fall quarter here where we are following Jesus around. I like to say that we're job shadowing Jesus. We've been looking at Jesus as he, as he's progressed through his first year of work, 
through his ministry throughout Palestine. And it's been a chance to see Jesus turn water into wine. Remember that, John chapter 2. It's been a chance to see him crack the whip in the temple and then have a conversation with someone in the middle of the night. Last week, Janie helped us understand two phrases that we hear a lot in the Christian faith, born again and eternal life. And to see that both of those have an incredible implications for our day to day. They're not things that just matter for after we die, for some time down the road. They matter for us right now. And this is actually a great opportunity for me to say, if you missed last week or you want to hear any of the other talks, hey, we have an app. Go ahead and download that app and it can be a way to stay connected uh, to the end. Advertisement over. All that to say, tonight we are going to continue with John chapter 4. Now, as we get into this text, uh, here's what you need to know. Jesus and the folks that are with him, kind of his, his uh, closest set of disciples, are taking the road less traveled. As Janie uh, led us through last week, uh, we are moving now from Jerusalem back up to uh, Galilee. I think I have a map up there, Elizabeth, okay? <laughs> Look at that. I've got a freaking laser in my hand. <laughs> Sharks with freaking laser beams attached to their heads. Is that too much to ask? Yes, if I was going to go for something for Halloween, I'd be freaking Dr. Evil. So here's what I want you to know. Yeah. Thank you. Very well then, where shall I begin? Okay, we were down here in Jerusalem. Now, what happens is most... Most Jewish uh, pilgrims, when going from Jerusalem to Galilee, would go this way. They would do everything they could do to stay out of that filthy, rotten Samaritan territory. But not Jesus. He and his boys decide to go right up the gut, and they're going to end up in a place called Sychar. And that's where we, where we want you to, that's where we're going to focus things tonight. Now, I, I show this map to you for a couple of reasons. One, I know that it's sometimes tempting to think that these stories are, are pretty abstract. And the first thing I want you to know is that these happened, you know, in a real place at a real time. Uh, so, so pay attention to that. And the second is this, just kind of as you read the Bible, always pay attention to the topography. Uh, and John, uh, the, in John's gospel, loves to give us some notes about, you know, where things were happening so that we might learn a little bit more. So Jesus is doing something that Jewish men never did. And I want to have Lindsay uh, start us off again by reading from John chapter 4, beginning at the fourth verse. Thanks, Lindsay. Now he had to go through Samaria. So he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about noon. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into the town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, You are a Jew, and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? for Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, You have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did also his sons and his flocks and herds? 
Jesus answered, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but those who drink the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. He told her, go call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, you are right when you say you have no husband. The fact is you have had five husbands and the man you now have is not your husband. What you have just said is quite true. Okay, thank you, Lindsay. Okay, first, a couple things to note about this. The first, did you catch this? It's a, it's a little note that John throws in there because he wants us to know it, where he just said that Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well, and then two verses later, it says his disciples had gone into town to buy food. Did you catch this? Jesus is hangry, okay? Maybe the disciples are going to go buy some beef jerky, mess with Sasquatch, whatever they might do. I don't know. But why would John throw it in there? I think it's an opportunity for us to see that, that John wants us to see that, that Jesus is fully human. He's not somebody that's just kind of hovering above the surface, kind of like this, this angel Jesus or phantom Jesus. No, Jesus is here. He gets hungry. He gets tired. John feels it's very important that you know this. All right. A mentor of mine helped me see three walls, three barriers that Jesus leaps right over in this story. I want to point them out to you. First, the racist barrier. Okay, we talked about this a little bit already. It would be one thing to go through Samaria and do your best to avoid all the people. Uh, the Jews and Samaritans hated each other. But Jesus transcends that, that racial barrier and instead of avoiding people, actually approaches people. The second would be the sexist barrier. Now, two aspects of this are in play. The first is noted by what the woman at the well says when, when she just flat out notes, hey, wait a minute here. You are a Jew and I am a woman. How can you ask me for a drink? Now, you need to understand that this woman is totally taken by surprise a, that there's somebody there and that this man is even associating with her. Second, as a rabbi, as a Jewish rabbi, it would have been that much more shocking that he is engaging and talking with a woman outside the city gates. Now, one contextual note that we talked about a few weeks ago that I, that I also want to point out, that when Jesus here says woman, when he's referring to the woman, it's not a terse comment. Remember back in John 2, when Jesus is talking to his mother, he refers to his Mary, his mother Mary as woman. So don't hear this as kind of a, an abrasive, you know, uh, you know, dehumanizing comment. It's actually a very, very humanizing one. And again, it's very significant to note that this Jewish man who's fully a man, he's hungry, he's tired, he's a rabbi, is, is, associating with this woman. Now, to boot, I think this interaction could actually be pretty embarrassing, right? I mean, maybe you've, you've experienced those moments where, where somebody's first interaction, they're telling a little too much truth. Maybe it's in that wedding toast that's gone bad where the best man gets up and just starts airing. A, he, he's, he's telling true stories, but you're awkward because, oh gosh, you're not supposed to be telling stories about the ex-girlfriend at a wedding. 
Okay, it might be true, but it's kind of awkward. I've experienced this in some pretty subtle ways in my life. I'll never forget this, that when I was a sophomore in high school, I was struggling in, in a math class. And I went in to go see the teacher, and, and right as I sit down to get help in working through these problems, this teacher says, Ryan, you know, let's, let's be straight up. You're not a math guy. You're, you're a people guy. And I'm like, okay, so when have being math guys and being people guys all of a sudden been separate? And there was this sense of he never really took seriously my desire to get better at this. And, and, and it hurt, honestly. Uh, another time, and, and this again might seem kind of, kind of trivial. I'm out, uh, this was as a college student. I was out playing golf with my dad and a couple of his friends. And we're playing a little match and I'm paired with one of my dad's friends playing against my dad and another's friends. And we're not playing well and frustrated at some point. This guy, dead serious, just, got me, just looks at me and goes, Ryan, you know, you're not good at, at golf. And uh, he goes, you're not very athletic, are you? And, 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 I'm like, and I'm like, oh, yeah, and you just came off the PGA Tour, didn't you? You know, I, I didn't say that, but that's what I wanted to say. It was one of those things where, in both cases, the, the, the teacher is telling some truth. The truth is, is that I, I wasn't very good at math, and I was struggling truth is, I'm not very good at golf, and I'm not very athletic. He was telling the truth. But sometimes that truth, when it is not also paired with the path through that truth, can be little more than discouraging, if not flat out abusive. In John chapter 1, we heard that Jesus came and moved in among us full of grace and truth. So I don't think that's what is at work here when Jesus confronts this woman and tells the truth about her. It is true that you don't have a husband. In fact, you have five, and the one that you are not with, uh, the one you are with now is not one. Truth. But what Jesus is trying to do, if the first barrier was a racial barrier, the second barrier was a sexist barrier, this last barrier that Jesus is trying to break through is the most, most significant barrier, the barrier of oneself, what I'll call the barrier of one's mask. You see, he, he was saying that I know you. I'm going to penetrate this mask that you are wearing. Now, what's the mask we're talking about? In first century culture, a well would be outside of the city gates. So it, it tells us that we're in Sychar, but we're actually just outside of Sychar. And going to get water was, think about a water cooler in an office. It can be the place where a lot of conversations happen. In, in an office building, perhaps you've had internships or worked in places where a lot of, a lot of conversation happens around just going to get water. Well, it was the same thing in the first century culture. And in fact, it was the job of women to go and take these jars and draw water and bring them back for their respective houses. It was a way that women in first century culture really connected. So just by the fact that this woman is alone and not in the fellowship of other women shows that she has a mask on. But in, by the fact that it was midday also shows that she has a mask on. Because those, the time when the other women would go would be early in the morning when it's not so hot or later in the evening when it's not so hot. 
You see, again, those contextual notes help us know that she is hiding from something. She's trying to hide her shame. She's there in the middle of the day. And what Jesus is, has done right here is say, I know who you are. I know who you've been with. I know why you're here alone. You can't hide from me. But you know, if this were the end of the conversation, of Jesus just telling the truth, my guess is that we'd be deeply troubled by it, but that's not what happens. First, Jesus stays with her. He doesn't retreat. He doesn't tell the truth and then bolt, but he stays. And then he offers a way through the problem. Let's pick it up again. Chapter four, verse 19. Sir, the woman says, after Jesus had told the truth about her, I can see that you are a prophet, a truth teller. Our ancestors worshiped on this mountain, but you Jews claim the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Woman, Jesus replied, believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in the spirit and in truth. For they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit, and his worshipers must worship in spirit and in truth. The woman said, I know that the Messiah, called Christ, is coming. When he comes, he'll clear this up for us. He'll explain it to us. Then Jesus declared, I, the one speaking to you, am he. Okay, what is Jesus getting at right here? Without getting into too many of the details, he's essentially saying, it's not about where you worship. And I like that when he, when he talks about this, he includes his own people as well. It's not about worshiping on this mountain, Mount Abel or Mount Gerizim. It's not about worshiping in Jerusalem. But rather, we all worship the Father in spirit and in truth. A few years ago, I had a chance, along with a group of people from UMIN, to go and visit Israel-Palestine and travel about to some of the, these places that we hear about in the Bible. And it was fun to see with my own eyes uh, some, of these, some of these places that, that uh, you know, are so significant in, in biblical stories and history. I got to go swimming in the Sea of Galilee, which actually looks a lot like uh, something like Lake Chelan or something like that. Uh, I got to go to the West Wall, which is in Jerusalem. Some people know it as the Wailing Wall. Uh, it is it is a high holy place for Jews because it's the remaining part of the temple that was destroyed in AD 70. And it's the closest that you can get to the place that the Jews would call the Holy of Holies, the place where they believe that God actually resided. Pretty cool to go and experience something that generations of faithful God seekers had experienced in front of me. But here's what sticks out more than anything from that trip to the Holy Lands, is that I discovered that God was actually no more present there than God is present right here. God isn't any more present in Jerusalem than God is present in Seattle. God isn't any more present on Mount Gerizim than he is on Mount Rainier. This is the promise that God will be faithful and God will be with us. 
we worship not in Jerusalem or on this mountain, but in spirit and in truth. What Jesus is saying here is that it's about a relationship. It's not about religion. It's about relationship. For a woman who is alone, the way through the problem is through this surprising relationship with a Jewish man. A Samaritan woman and a Jewish man. And what might have been most striking is if all this isn't most, isn't surprising enough, what might be most surprising as this conversation continues is that now this guy is referring to God as a father. This would have no doubt been the first time that this woman would ever have heard God or a God spoken of as a father. And no doubt the suggestion there is that God approaches you like a loving parent to a child. That God is the one who desires to be close to his people and associate with them regardless of race, gender, or background. It's the suggestion, God as father, that you are known by God that God isn't indifferent about you. God's not trying to smite you. And in fact, I think that's what is striking to the woman here. She wants to know more. I want to meet this Messiah face to face and everything will be clarified. And then the mic drop moment, <laughs> the one you are talking to. Yeah, I am he. Boom, Yahtzee. Now, what's significant about that moment? Jesus, this is the first time in the Gospel of John that he declares, I'm the Messiah. And it's not to a king. It's not to a priest. It's not to a head of state or a religious insider. But rather to a pagan woman, an outsider, one lonely, one caught in sin. And she's the one that Jesus is in front of saying, you belong to me and I belong to you. So what do we do with all this? What does this mean for us? Well, it means that first and foremost, you are known. It means you're not alone. And this is really significant because in my 15 years of working as a college pastor, I would call loneliness the single biggest issue that y'all deal with. It's issues such as, it's, it's because of loneliness that we hear about issues that get so much more play. Issues like substance abuse, eating disorders, pornography, sexual addiction. But I believe that loneliness, that feeling of being isolated, ashamed, or really just different, is really at the root of all of these symptoms. I think that they are ways that we medicate the pain of feeling isolated, ashamed, or different. The problem with these things, along with other symptoms, is that what do they do? They get us actually feeling even worse about ourselves, And then what happens? We isolate ourselves that much more. We feel that much more ashamed we feel that much more different and out of reach. We feel lost. In Jesus approaching this woman outside of the city as she by, is by herself, it shows that even as this woman was actually not seeking to find anyone, in fact, she was avoiding them, Jesus seeks us. Jesus seeks her. 
She is known and now not alone. This past summer, again, even though I'm not good at it, I was out playing golf with this dude and we hadn't known each other for more than a few hours. And I was a little bit surprised that when he asked me what I did, and after telling him that I was a pastor, he was actually interested to talk about his faith. And as I was listening, it sounded as if he had a, a long-standing, very vibrant faith. But somewhere around, I don't know, the 15th or 16th hole, um, he, we're, we're waiting on a tee, and he just said, Ryan, I don't know what happened, but somewhere along the line, I, I lost God. And as, as gently, but yet as confidently as I could, I looked back at him and said, you know, you may feel like you've lost God, but God has not lost you. And right there on the golf course, the dude just burst into tears. Uh, that, that news that even though he had felt like he wasn't seeking God, God sought him. He felt lost but God had not lost him. You see, Jesus wants to leap over all the barriers that may be around us. The ones we're responsible for and the ones we're not. Jesus knows you. He knows where you are. He knows who you are. So where are the places that you go where you feel known? I hope you're connected to a small group that is, or that might be able to become that. I hope that you have a group of friends that you don't need to impress because we need community. But inevitably, there are also times where that feeling of loneliness will still be overwhelming. And in those moments, I want to remind you to go to God, even if it's on your own, and recognize that you are not alone. Open your Bible and read and be reminded that God knows you that God loves you and wants to be with you. God's done it. In Jesus, he has sought you out. You are known. Second reflection is this. We are about a person, not a place. When Jesus talks about worshiping in spirit and in truth, I think it's really another way to say that you are not alone. Missionary theologian Leslie Newbigin says it like this. To say that God is spirit means God has run towards us with open arms as a father ran to meet the prodigal son. It is only because of the spirit that the truth about ourselves and thus the truth about our need for Jesus and our need for company and comfort of God can be revealed. So simply this, worshiping in spirit and in truth is allowing God to meet us exactly in the place we are and believing God wants to be with me. Do you believe that tonight? Do you believe that God wants to be with you? What are the barriers that keep you from believing that? What are the barriers that you construct that keep you from believing that? Finally, the end of the story is impressive. Verse 39. Many of the Samaritans from that town believed in Jesus because of the woman's testimony. She went back to her city and said, he told me everything I ever did. Well, it wasn't everything, but it was significant, right? 
So when the Samaritans actually came to him, to Jesus, they urged him to stay with them. And so Jesus stayed two days. And because of his words, many more became believers. And they said to the woman, we no longer believe just because what you have said, but now we have heard it for ourselves. We know it to be true. We know that this man really is the savior of the world. As this woman went back to her village, they are overwhelmed by this outcast woman's perspective and they come and they meet Jesus for themselves and believe. And so the takeaway is this. And what I really want you to hear tonight is that you are worth it. You are worth something. This story shows that Jesus believes that people are valuable regardless of what their past might be, regardless of what they might be caught in. You are valuable and you are worth it. The woman who goes to the well has now become a well. She goes back to her, her, her village and she can't help but say, you know, even though this guy knows exactly who I am, I'm accepted. He knows me. I belong. And now I'm experiencing life, life for the first time. And you got to come and see this. The woman who went to the well has become a well. And you see, it's this, that the cross of Jesus Christ reminds us that there is no distance that Jesus isn't willing to go to rescue those who feel alone, to rescue those who are lonely, and it's that same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead that has been given to us that we might not go, not by ourselves, but with the spirit to live lives that are dynamic and full and about something more than ourselves and to invite others to do exactly the same thing. As the woman who went to the well became a well, may we be people who do exactly the same thing that we might invite others to know this life, this true life, that in walking with the Spirit, we might somehow know and experience that in us, God wants to accomplish even more than we can ask or even imagine. You're worth it. You are worth it. And not before you get yourself right. You're worth it right now. And that's the gospel of Jesus. Let's pray. God, you're good to us. Thank you that you meet us exactly as we are in the place that we are. Help us to know how, how wonderful this truth is. Help us to know your love. Would you make yourself even that much more real to us? Help us to grasp how worth it we are. Give us courage, uh, not only to go to the well, but to be a well. Uh, to be those who invite others to experience the life that I somehow know you so desperately want to give us. And so, God, would you be enthroned on the praises as we thank you once again for the ways that you have rescued and redeemed us. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.